This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we debate dishwashers and reveal our sudsing priorities. I go to the movies to see Blade Runner 2049. I have mixed feelings and left confused. Don't worry, Matt. With some help of sheep, we'll sort this all out. This is Do Androids Dream of Blade Runner? <laughs> it looks great outside though yeah no it's um it's a nice chill like it's like an autumn chill finally right and it uh i don't know it's looking nice but uh i was watching the world series last night right that's like, what happens every fall bro it was the first baseball game i've watched um in like at least a month and a half like really? i gave up on the blue jays halfway through the well, season yeah, and just sort yeah. of stopped watching that and violet being born but uh the game time temperature in Los Angeles, uh, the World Series between Los Angeles and the Astros, Houston Astros, um, was like 109 degrees. And I was, um, oh when God. I was driving up here, I was listening to a podcast um, that uh, they converted that. It's like 39 degrees Celsius. That is disgusting. And that is a game time temperature. That's seven o'clock at night. Wow. That's crazy, yeah? It's wow. like the hottest World Series on uh, record. Now, I'm a little upset that my team didn't make it. And uh, what team is that again, Phil? really yeah 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 new york yeah i, I just choose not to say the name oh jeez, <laughs> i'm a little upset they made a run for it yeah sound of the it looked like they were going to be able to pull it off and then fell yeah flat. i mean they're also going to be like spectacular for the next they're going to have another Forever. decade run yeah, yeah 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 like they had the yankees are such a this is why one of the reasons i hate them so much they they are only bad for like maybe two years and then they just get like amazingly good again. Yeah. Right. So well, they pump money into it. So, um, as I said, I was driving up here, I was listening to a podcast that I kind of wanted to plug if I could. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so a couple of Canadian guys, uh, they started out as independent podcasters and now one of them I'm pretty sure has gotten a job as like a freelance writer with the Jays. Um, so their show is called Artificial Turf Wars. Right, and it's a Blue Jays nice. podcast, and a recurring thing with the Blue Jays is they want to replace the artificial turf yeah. of the Sky Dome yeah. with uh, real grass. So that's the play on there. But uh, uh, I'm just going to echo what Skip and Josh podcast from yeah. Montreal and Toronto yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, said. Uh, it looks good on TV. It looks good. Yeah, they replaced the. Um, they put dirt on the infield and then put a dirt warning track around the um, the fence, so it looks a little bit more like a baseball field. But the only problem is when you see a ball hit the outfield like a single like a oh, no, single. It, it goes, you get this yeah. shoot no you you get this shoot of like rubber pellets Those little pellets like yeah, old yeah, uh, yeah, tires yeah, that they yeah, use out yeah. there but apparently the players say it plays well so yeah, yeah. anyway we won't get into the artificial yeah. turf wars right, here all right, all right. but um yeah greg and josh are the hosts um i wanted to plug them because uh they only started maybe a f- couple years ago but they're really taking off um they had uh, mark shapiro the president of the toronto blue jays on as a guest on the second to last episode, and then on this episode that I was listening to, they had Shai Davidi, who is my favorite Blue Jays uh, beat reporter. He's a really good writer, really, really smart. Um, so they had him on, and they're getting these big guests, and they're kind of like blowing up. So I just wanted to give some love to uh, an indie podcast that is actually doing good. And what's the name of the podcast again? Um, Artificial Turf Wars. So check out Artificial Turf Wars with Greg and Josh. Yeah, cool. Now, Thanks. as we do on our intro segments... Matt, and for everyone who's new, uh, welcome. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. I am Philip Primo. Oh, and I'm Matt Sanderson. Now, Semi-Intellectual Musings is a podcast about social sciences, humanities, and arts. We try not to take ourselves too seriously, and we try to think of it as a conversation with you, the listener, at a pub, preferably on a campus somewhere. Yep. But we always start out, or we try to, anyway, start our intros with a, a little fun game. Now, today we have a friend or foe, and uh, the topic that we talked about, Matt and I, last night, late last night, was dishwashers. Dishwashers. Yeah. Friend or foe. Friend or foe dishwashers. Matt, I'm going to, I'm looking at you. Yeah. The automated dishwasher, the type that you, you know, you, you open it up and there's the little rack inside and you load up your dirty dishes and then you do whatever you got to do. I am familiar with the dishwasher. Okay. Yes. Okay. Friend, yes. friend or foe. Um, so I would say right off the bat, foe. We... Mel and I have been married for almost 10 years, and we've never had a dishwasher until we moved into this new place in March. Okay. And our dishwasher is awesome. It works really well, 
But I reason I say faux is because you end up washing the dishes before even putting them into the dishwasher. Mm, the pre-wash. And then I'm like, we still have a dryer rack, right? Which would be kind of interesting to talk about too. Like, is that worth having on the counter? Like it takes up a lot of room and you, you don't use it too much when you have a dishwasher. So like having a dishwasher makes the dryer rack redundant. But then it's been a part of our our life for the last nine years, this dryer rack, it came from BC with us and we can't like bring ourselves to throw it away. So, okay. Dryer racks aside, Phil, friend or foe dishwasher. Uh, so I am familiar with the pre-wash mm-hmm. that sometimes needs to happen. Yeah. Like oatmeal. You can't put a bowl. Yeah. Like that yeah. shit just stuck on. Yeah. Tomato sa- sauce with uh, Parmesan cheese. Yeah. In it. Yeah. That's you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do a pre-wins. Now it is a friend for me for the simple reason that, when you don't have a dishwasher, uh, what ends up happening is you pile up your dishes in the sink, right? You don't you don't get to them right away. Like, let's be honest. Oh, folks. that's true. Yeah. So yeah. you just pile them up in the sink. So yeah, a yeah. dishwasher is a convenient storage place for oh. dirty dishes. Now I see the dishwasher as hiding your dirty dishes mm. most of the time. Oh, okay. That, that's the way I see it. That's interesting because you can't put your dirty dishes like, well, I, I suppose you could, but like in the oven. So, okay, can I ask you? Or back in with the clean dishes. Can I ask you, like, when you forgot whether you turned the dishwasher on or not and you, like, open it up, what are a couple of things that you look for to determine if those are clean dishes or dishes that need to be cleaned? I look between the little spokes and the forks. Oh, really? And if I see little pieces of food, I know it's it's not clean. Mm. Uh, But we're pretty good at running ours. Like, to be honest, we've had it in the last two houses that we've had. And, um, we use the timed function. Mm. So before we go to bed, we kind of set it to go off in two or four hours and then it runs at night and doesn't bother us. Mm. Um, but it does happen that, you know, it oh, will be have, full. Oh, you have a time function. That's pretty cool. Like, yeah, for like me, a delay start. Like I hate my dishwasher. It just kind of popped in my head because it's so noisy. Right. And for someone with 22 concussions, um, I'm pretty sensitive to noise. Right, yeah. Um, so I put that on or our washing clothes, washing machine, and it's just like absolute torture. All so, right. So for me, yeah. it is a friend, Yeah. but you did bring up a dish rack. Yes. Dish so, rack. uh, let's extend this a okay. little bit, sure. um, to two things, you know, those little sponges that you fill with soap. Yes. Because, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Let me back up. Okay. You can't really put pots and pans in the dishwasher. No. Right? Like no. it's too clunky. Yeah. Doesn't clean up right. So you you still need to clean some stuff in the sink. Yeah, right? for sure. Those little sponges that you fill the handle up with soap. Totally. You know, friend or foe? Uh, friend, um, but uh, it became a, a point of contention with Mel and I, actually. Mm. Um, she would, like a real pet peeve that turned into a real, like, anger point for me. Uh, she would put the... Um, the spongy uh, rack. Sorry, there's an awesome car going by right now. Oh, it's a pickup truck, yeah. country pickup truck. Um, so she would put the scrubby sponge thing upside down. So with the sponge pointing down, so it would slowly yeah, the leak, leak the yeah. soap out, right? And we we're just going through dish soap like, like uh-huh. we're the Roosevelts or something. Like we we're, just, <laughs> I don't even know if they're rich. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, okay, I was going to say Trump, but I, I stopped. He doesn't myself. wash his dishes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not rich either. So it is um, a friend uh, if it's stored correctly. Yeah, yeah, and okay. and it's also a friend because it taught Mel and I how to communicate more effectively. Wow. Who knew that it could do all that? For me, it is an absolute foe. I hate them. Really? I think that they're just little uh, incubators for bacteria. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, they totally are. And uh, the, the stick, the wand thing is always empty. Mm. Uh, even if you just fill it up, it feels like it's always empty. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't come out uh, in the right quantity. You either have too much or too yeah, little. Yeah, you got to like bang it, the pot it, with the and scrubby then, thing to get some soap going. <laughs> and then what do you do when the scrubby thing is dead, uh, but it's filled with soap? Like, wh- what are you supposed to do there, right? Yeah, you drink the soap. Well, no. I, SOS pads are the way to go. Okay. You get a simple SOS pad. It, but like that, way to go. the blue detergent that comes off them, that freaks me out a little bit. Like, well, what is it doesn't, that? It doesn't need to be, okay, I said SOS, but it, like you can get them in vinyl kind of plastic mm. kind of thing that yeah, doesn't yeah. have that soap in it. You can get them in a variety form, yeah. like just a scrub pad. Yeah. Right. And then use your fucking soap on the side. Yeah. Couple drops, whatever. Yeah. And those are like good dollar store buys as well. So you can exactly. save some money that way exactly. too. Uh, Matt. We're not going to spend the episode talking about how to do dishes. Well, uh, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> we got some other stuff to cover. <laughs> but but it is a good indication that as uh, exennial men, yes. uh, we do do dishes. Oh, yes, yes. We're, we're quite liberated. That's how Mel sold it to me. Oh, She's like, okay. aren't you progressive, Matt? Do the dishes. 
<laughs> All right, we'll talk about that some other time. Cool. But today, uh, on today's episode, folks, we are talking about something that a lot of other podcasts are talking about, Blade Runner. Yep. However, we're not going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049 exclusively. Yeah, exactly. We're going back to the original, and uh, Matt, you want to bring in your experience with uh, Philip K. Dick's novel as well. Yep, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, so yeah, I read that uh, a number of years ago, so I'm going to kind of revisit it. Uh, Phil and I both re-watched the original, and then I went off to the movie theater and <laughs> experienced Blade Runner 20-whatever in 3D, so that should be fun. So Blade Runner that was released in 1982? Yep. Uh, yep, my birth year, actually. Very nice. <laughs> so when we come back after this short break, uh, we're going to deep dive into Blade Runner as a franchise. Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. Today we're talking about Blade Runner, kind of the franchise, the book that is based on Philip K. Dick's novel. Matt, uh, why don't you start us off a little bit with your impressions about the 1982 Blade Runner. Do we call it an adaptation of the book? Do we call it... How does it fit in with uh, Philip K. Dick's novel? Well, it's actually kind of an interesting place to start. Um, There's much debate over kind of how much uh, license both sides had, whether it was Ridley Scott who uh, wrote and directed the original Blade Runner from 1982, or Philip K. Dick who wrote the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, I read the book, I would say, 15 years ago, and uh, I read it before I even saw the original Blade Runner. Right. So I actually saw it in the correct order, and then um, maybe a week ago, or a few days ago, I don't even know what day it is, right? Um, yeah, yeah I went a few to, days ago for you, yeah. Yeah, I went to the movie theater for the first time in a long time and uh, uh, watched the new movie just so that we can do this episode. The Blade so. Runner 2049, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to, let's bring it back to Blade Runner. We'll start with that and then we'll go back to the book. Uh, Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott, produced by Michael Dealey. Um, based on uh, Philip K. Dick's novel, The Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, Edward James almost. It was a phenomenal failure at the box office Seriously? at the start. Really? Yes, there okay. are like three versions of screenplay, I believe. There's a director's cut, there's an extended cut, there is a theatrical cut. Uh, seems like uh, Ridley Scott was never happy with it. And also maybe that they kept re-releasing it so they can make up on those box office sales because it's quite the cult classic as well. Like people it, love this movie. It really is a cult classic. Yeah. It was released June 25th, 1982 in theater. It has a 117-minute runtime, so it is a long movie for the 80s. Uh, now, it had a box office sell uh, of $33.8 million. Like that's not a lot of money. No. And no. I feel like uh, Parallel to uh, the new one, Blade Runner 2049, which, uh, for all intents and purposes, isn't really a hit at the box office right now. Seriously? No. It's oh, really? It's kind of, uh, it's falling flat. Yeah, okay, so, like, we'll talk about the new one maybe a little bit later, but I had that same, I'll just tell you, I had that same feeling when I left. I was, I left the theater, I'm like, was that good, and I just need to let it, like, simmer a little bit so I could pick up all the nuances, but I kind of left, like, meh. Yeah. Like, oh, I wish I didn't buy the popcorn as well. Right. Like, damn. <laughs> like, because I was really looking forward to it. Because as I said, I only saw Blade Runner, um, you know, like a few years ago. And then I rewatched it as well ahead of this one before going to see the new one. Um, and man, that's a masterpiece. Like even, and I just watched the standard, um, the original cinematic release from 82. Okay. okay. Um, but 
I thought it was a masterpiece. I'm like, oh, like, I'm glad I watched this a little bit later in life because you pick up on all the details and the way it was filmed and the darkness and the quietness of it. Um, and then it's funny too, because Ridley Scott is like, man, I can, I can make this better. I can keep adding to it. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting like story, the movie itself, like how it was made and how it was re-released. And then also I, I want to get into some of the, some of the book as well. So I don't know. Um, did you, like, how many times have you seen the original Blade Runner? So I actually had to watch the original for this episode. I had never seen the original Blade Runner. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. And I haven't read Philip K. Dick's novel. Perfect. And I haven't seen the new one. So okay, I'm great. like almost a total newbie yeah, at this yeah. one. So I watched the director's cut uh, last night. So it's fresh in my mind. Uh, I really enjoyed the cinematography. It is shot beautifully. Yeah, totally. And uh, we'll get into it a little bit later, yeah. but from what I've seen of the new one, they've recreated the feel of Los Angeles, busy, dark, but there's an almost an opposite to it where it's shot mostly in the day and yeah. the original is shot mostly at night. So oh, we'll, we'll yeah, get into yeah. the we'll get into the aesthetics of the screenplay yeah, totally. a little bit later, but the main kind of plot of the new one is Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard. Uh, who is a Blade Runner, specialized cop to track down replicants. So we're living in Los Angeles in the year 2019, where we have colonized other planets. And for all intents and purposes, we have created artificial intelligence or beings that are pretty much like human, but are machines. Yeah, they're they're organic, but they are like... Um like they miss certain elements of what it means to be right. a human. Right? Yeah. They, they're missing elements of humanity. And, and that's what makes them controllable. And, and they, these people are sent, these replicants are sent off world, they call it, um, to colonize and develop these planets for human habitation. And we quickly learn uh, of Rutger Hauer's character, Roy Beatty, who is a rebel replicant, yeah. figures out that he is a replicant, figures out that he has a time span that's actually programmed into him. And uh, is pissed off. He's really mad at this. So they come down to Earth with uh, basically a crew. Yeah. So they're four replicants. Yeah. And uh, they try to figure out what the hell's going on. Now, this is all in response to the Tyrell Corporation's yeah. making of a new replicant, yeah. Model 6. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. The Nexus 6, I think they call it. And um, these uh, the four of them who come down, one of them is like a military sort of um, replicant. So there, he's super strong, super agile. Um, the another one, uh, this is in the original. The another one is like a worker um, replicant, yep, yep. and then there is a, a super strong female one, like a soldier, but a female. Yeah. And then um, a sex bot, basically the foreskin one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then there's the the one who is just there for like um, servicing the uh, the offworlders i guess they are considered slaves yeah totally and uh you know this this episode uh so warning trigger warning this episode is full of spoilers so yeah, if you haven't sure. seen the 1982 movie too bad yeah um, yeah yeah the new one i'll, I'll save the finer details for yeah to go no see spoilers it. on the new yeah, one no, but we're gonna sure. spoil the hell out of this old one yeah uh <laughs> so basically uh deckard is uh tasked with uh finding hunting killing these replicants and uh, they don't want the population to know that they've come back. Mm. So there's a sort of mystique around the replicants. Right. Living off world, colonizing, doing the work for humans. But they're not supposed to interfere in human affairs. They're not yeah. supposed to come back. They're not supposed to rebel. That's the plot. That's where it starts. That's yeah. how the movie kicks off. The opening scene to the movie is phenomenal. Mm. Uh, we have an interview that is happening at the Tyrell Corporation, trying to figure out if who is a replicant. So they know that, they, that they've come back, that they've infiltrated the Tyrell Corporation, and they're trying to figure out if uh, Brian James as Leon Kowalski yep. is a replicant yeah. or not. He, yeah. Um, sure. And I think he's the worker guy. Right? He's the yeah. worker guy, kind yeah. of scruffy looking. Yeah. Uh, and how do they tell if somebody's a replicant, Phil? So they had this technology where it appears as if through a series of questions and cross-referencing the responses of these replicants or these people, they can figure out if there is emotional response or not. And based right. on that, they can distinguish if it's human or not. Yeah. And where do they, they focus the, the it's this weird, I want to talk more about the technology in a second, um, but they focus this like viewer thing on your eyeball, yeah. one of your eyeballs. And they ask you these morally laden questions 
to basically assess the level of humanity and um, that you have within you. And then they measure your biometric responses to it. And Decker um, and his colleagues are these people called Blade Runners. And their job is to basically identify these replicants who have returned to Earth and um, blow them away, basically. Yeah. Right? Because And the violence in Blade Runner is quite intentionally, like, like over the top and like ruthless, right? Because it also gets at the, well, these replicants aren't fully human. Maybe these Blade Runners aren't fully morally human as well. Well, we're going to get into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I um, want, so yeah. so that's kind of like the foundation sure. premise of the movie. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of analysis of this movie over the years. I don't think we need to walk through scene by scene. No, no. Um, no. I want to bring in uh, Sean Young, Mary Sean Young character, Rachel. Okay. Uh, that? Oh yeah. So right. okay. Deckard yeah. meets Rachel at the Tyro Corporation, introduced to her, and he is asked to assess if Rachel is or is not a uh, replicant. Yeah, that's um, another powerful scene by Eldon Tyrell, who is yeah. the owner, who's played by uh, Joey or Joe Turkle. Okay. Now he's the guy with the big thick glasses, kind of weird, yeah, totally. weirdest glasses. Um, now we're not sure if Rachel is a replicant or not at this point, but it kind of seems like she would be. Right? Yeah. She's yeah. kind of like uh, monotonous. Uh, yeah. A little bit off. A little like, bit off. You're almost. noticing stuff, but it's also like maybe she's like very, very like upper class, like been groomed for this position. So exactly. Like yeah. But you're like, he pulls in Decker to assess, like to see how good Decker is and see how good their new model is. Yeah. They can fool even the Blade Runners. Exactly. So, um, you know, Eldon Tyrell says, I want to see a negative response before I see a positive response. So before you go around killing my, my creations, my, mm. my, my, the people, the things that I've created, I want to see you test Rachel. And it takes 120 questions to figure out that Rachel is a replicant. Uh, and this kind of sets the stage for a very important, but yet secondary kind of plot in the movie, which is Deckard falling in love with Rachel. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of out of nowhere mm. it was a little strange i thought uh, i didn't think it had a place in the movie it, interesting. It, yeah like i don't know if they needed the love kind of thing mm. but it turns out that we needed it for the end yeah and this is one of those movies where you watch three quarters of it and you're still not sure like what's, what's going, going on, on. Yeah, why yeah, things yeah. are there the until like the last scene yeah 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 okay so yeah, good yeah. how does this parallel so far with the novel so like that is loosely based I, from on. what I remember, there was no real ending to the novel. Um, it just sort of ended, if you know what I mean. Like there was no bow on the end of it, right? Um, another parallel is that um, there's this question of how human the replicants are and how human humans are as well, right? So it's actually a moral story, right? It's about morality. Um, and then the only other features that... I see are like the skeleton outline of like the Tyrell Corporation, the replicants going off world. And also um, there's a strong um, critique of the environment, like environmental degradation um, throughout the novel. And um, that's basically why people are going off world in the movie as well. So there's this harsh critique about like environmental policies and things like this. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's fairly early for that. I believe it was written in maybe the seventies or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's quite early. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, sure. and we're going to kind of try to keep this episode contained. So yeah. I'm going to keep it moving on. I want to talk about the Orientalism that occurs throughout okay, the film. Cool. Uh, we I wasn't are expecting met, you're going to ask about that. We so are well. met with it uh, in um, not the opening scene, but the following from yeah. the opening scene, which is where Deckard is basically waiting for his uh, Chinese noodles. And, um, throughout the film, what we see is that LA is basically, um, a replication, if you want to call it this, of, um, some Chinese kind of, uh, village, yeah. right? Uh, Chinese downtown core, Beijing, something yeah. like that, right? And it's also, but then there's also, um, like Atari is a product placed all over the place and other Japanese technology uh, firms that even in 1982, people are like, they're going to be huge in like yes. the nineties or yes. whatever. Right. Yeah. And, um, so we'll come back to the advertisers, but, um, 
good picking up that most of the advertisers are foreign. Most of them are Oriental in nature. So Korean, Japanese, or Chinese. And we use Oriental as like Orientalism from Edward Said. Well, this is... And like, this is a bigger term. Like, it's not Phil using some weird outdated term. This is where I'd like to go with it. I want to go with the idea of LA, which is kind of, uh, you know, throughout the 90s, the kind of epicenter of Western uh, consumerism, uh, for for lack of a better term. Um, being uh, portrayed in a way in which it has become orientalized. Yeah, it is totally. exotic. It yeah. is something different. And it is in, uh, as Saeed would kind of say, in juxtaposition to Western philosophy, Western thought. Yeah, and totally. I want to kind of throw this out there by saying, is it purposeful yeah. to position uh, this future New York, uh, this future L.A., as a juxtaposition between the West and the East. So it's really interesting, Phil. In the original movie, 1982, um, the writing on the buildings is Chinese, from what I could tell, just from the characters. But the technology is Japanese, right? And that speaks to, you know, the early 80s in Japan um, moving ahead. So, But the connection, when you started talking about Orientalism, that I thought was really interesting, um, it doesn't appear in the novel in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, because it was written in the 70s. Um, Japan hadn't like come up in the technological right, right, right. Uh, um, in prominence or whatever. But uh, a connection I wanted to make. Um, have you ever read The King in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick? No, no, I haven't, no. Okay, so the premise of that book really shortly is that imagine if Japan and Germany won the Second World War and they came in and just sort of kept invading territory and took over America. Um, so okay. Germany's got the eastern seaboard, Japan's got the Western seaboard and then the middle is like the free states of America, right? Um, so you see there that Philip K. Dick, I would argue, is interested in questions about Orientalism and foreign influence. Um, you see that in his books and then maybe Ridley Scott picked up on it and like updated it to like 1982. Right. Basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah so. No, I, I kind of like that. Uh, I want to move on to another point. Um, the cinematography and the way in which that opening scene... Uh, is very Kubrick-esque. It okay. uh, looks um, almost identical to how Stanley Kubrick would have shot yeah. uh, a scene. So yeah. there's kind of rapid transitions. You see the eye, and then you see the building, the Tyrell Corporation, yeah. and, and then click, you see click, it click, 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 yeah. click, that kind of stuff. The opening scene for the new movie is like that too. So, it's very expansive. So there's, a, there's a nod, uh, implicit nod to Kubrick. Now I watch the director's cut, uh, but then I watch the ending of the theatrical cut, and... Um, in the ending of the movie, after they get into the elevator, after they find the origami unicorn, and we're right. going to talk about that, yeah. uh, there's a cutscene to them driving through uh, the kind of um, forests. They're driving through the mountains, and it is uh, outtakes of The Shining from Kubrick. Oh, yes, I heard the, about this. Yeah, yeah, that's really... Okay, keep going. So, yeah. Um, so, I want to continue on with this uh, Kubrick connection here. And I want to go, I want to fast forward all the way uh, to the ending of the scene, of, of the movie, uh, where we have um, a standoff between Deckard, uh, between Batty, right? And Pre. Yeah. So they're in the, the kind of... Like weird... They're place, in, yeah. The, yeah, they're in GF's house, basically. GF, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, his apartment. Yeah. The guy's last name is Sanderson, by the way. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, you'd notice that. <laughs> and uh, so Pre is dead, right? But just after Pre dies, we have Batty that howls like a wolf. Right, yeah, yeah. And then he starts chanting in a very similar way as uh, Nicholson's character in The Shining. So he oh, starts wow, yeah. replicating this, I'm going to come and get you. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. come, and, and, and it's approached as yeah. a game. Here's Johnny. Exactly. Like that, yeah. It's approached as a game. Yeah. And the chess yeah. board that is used throughout uh, the film. So there's a game of chess that's occurring right, right, yeah. uh, between this GF character who actually kind of makes... Um, prototypes like, of yeah of, and parts of and stuff he's like a toy maker of, he's but a he's a maker. craftsman for um, the tyrell corporation exactly and, and he, he plays the uh the ceo of the tyrell corporation in this virtual game of chess basically right yeah. but it's actually played on a real chessboard. they both have their boards and they're both moving around and they're doing their things and but when Beatty is approaching deckert it's approached as a game of chess but the ending of it is very kubrick-esque 
So mm. there's violence, there's blood, there's yeah. the wolf chant, there's uh, this game of if I can catch you. Yeah, but to me ending, that's the most gripping it, scene. It was the yeah. most gripping yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah it had you. Um, so I wanted to kind of point to Kubrick's influence For sure. in here and um, basically just hear what you want to, your thoughts on if we could watch this movie through the lens of it, could it have mm. been directed by Kubrick? So um, just remind me, it, Kubrick directed uh, 2001 Space Odyssey? That's right, and that's, The Shining. That's yeah. what it reminds and me of. And many others. Right? And one of the things that is, is rattling in my head is the eye, the circles that yes, they would use. Exactly, yes. And, um, and the cutscenes as the, well. The eye is, basic, is basically a scene from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, right? and the, I've got to say, man, the special effects for 1982 were, just like Space Odyssey, were way ahead of their time. Absolutely. And it almost makes it more believable. Um, yeah, I, I can see that. And also, um, the play of darkness and light, because even yes. though it's a very dark movie, there's also these neon billboards all over the place. Right. And something the new movie picked up on for sure. Yep. Um, so I think some of those features for sure reminds me of Kubrick. Absolutely. Um, can I talk to you about some of the technology that was used in the, the old movie in 1982? Um, I, when I was rewatching it for this episode, I'm like, this is futuristic analog technology. Like, yes. like, okay, I, I was yes, hoping you'd pick up yeah. on that. Um, it's like, okay, this is what the world will look like in 2020 if technology stopped developing in 1982. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's I like, mean, it's always hard to foresee how technology is going to go. And um, really, you know, the technological leap that happened sometime in the 90s was the advent of uh, advanced wireless technology. So, wireless, so every, yeah. everything is analog. Everything yeah. is plugged in yeah, somehow. They, they, right? Everything's got dials and stuff. But yep. it's also like everything is retrofitted. Yes. Right? And that was another feature of analog technology where you can like open it up and fiddle with it. But yes. as we move towards digital, there's no, um, there's no buttons to tweak. So the whole character of the, this GF character, um, the toy maker, um, he's like working in high, high, high level technologies, but it's like, it's mechanical. Yes. Right. It can be fiddled with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like the human body. Right. Right. And that's the whole point. I want to bring in a scene, uh, from the bar. Sure. Uh, where Deckard is calling, um, uh, who's he calling? Uh, Deckard is calling Rachel. Mm. He's at a bar and he wants Rachel to come out for a drink and Rachel refuses. Right. But he uh, dials from a payphone. Yeah. yeah essentially totally. a payphone. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of looks like a Skype message because there's video. Yeah, there's video. Yeah. But essentially it's a big ad for Bell Telephone. Yeah. That, and yeah, yeah, what totally. is fascinating is that one of the first technologies uh to leave us from the 80s was the payphone like payphones yeah. are uh, pretty much obsolete now yeah and but then also the promise of the 80s and the 90s was video conference calling like that was the first thing that they worked on the first sort of right. digital technology um it, that and flying cars i suppose in which there's uh, there's some flying cars in the new one right so um, let's yeah. let's move away from the realm of technology sure, sure. and into a realm of social relationships Cool. Matt, I want to talk about something problematic in the movie. Okay. Uh, that is the way that sex is approached. Mm-hmm. Um, there, so I, <laughs> yeah. I, and I want to, I, so there's a few different yeah. things that we yeah. can say about this, but I want to start with uh, the problematic sexual advances that Decker has with Rachel. Yeah, that's the first one I came to mind. So yeah. the setup for the scene is uh, Decker is obviously falling in love with Rachel. Yeah. Um, there's uh, uh, she tries to leave his apartment. He blocks the door. Yeah. He commands her to tell him that she wants him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Commands her to gross. say kiss me. Yeah. And then uh, ostensibly we don't see it, but ostensibly they uh, make love. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny, when I watched this like 10 years ago, I'm like, oh, that's Harrison Ford just being a Harrison Ford character. Right. Now when I rewatched it um, just a week or two ago, I was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. I yeah. have to bring this up. It was, yeah, it was gross. Yeah. Now there is a category of replicant that is made exclusively for pleasure. Yeah. Sexual pleasure. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the four that comes down. She's uh, like the smaller one, basically. Yeah. yeah. Which is an uh, interesting, like commentary on uh views of sexuality like if you're going to be desirable you have to be the small like sort of one that looks like she's a little pixie like right. made for sex yes right? now yeah. they've picked up this theme in uh blade runner 2049 yeah. they've used this category of uh, the foreskin replicant what, what do you mean sorry foreskin replicant yeah so they use this category as being just kind of like a small 
utilitarian for sexual oh, okay. desire kind of thing okay. and the depiction of K, correct? Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm sorry, you just kept saying foreskin and I was like, what is this? Is it actually like the number four or like the foreskin? No, I think, I think, I think the term is kind of used as that really they're just a punk of meat. Oh, right? yeah, it's, yeah. it's derogatory. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's for sure. And there's um the derogatory treatment of um what's the the actor's name, the protagonist in the new one? It's not Jake Gyllenhaal, is it? What's that guy's name? I'll let you look that up. But I always mix them up. But anyway, the protagonist um he is a replicant, um Blade Runner, right? So when he's walking through the police stations and stuff, he's getting like catcalled and derisive. Um, like comments thrown his way and he's also there's graffiti always on his door and people are um, I, I can't remember what they call them but they, there's a certain term um, for these replicants and they're very much like like stigmatized at least damn near taboo like people don't even like look at them and stuff and I thought the actor did a really good job of like expressing shame um, throughout the the movie that he was like ashamed of who he was but he also knew that he was more advanced than humans like physically and and in some ways cognitively as right well. so you're talking about ryan gosling's ryan character gosling, is k. yeah yeah um Thank now you. you brought up something interesting yeah. uh knowing that k is a replicant yeah yeah you know that right away yeah they establish that right at the beginning what we and uh, you know this might be one of the last things that we talk about uh in blade runner ni- 1982 yeah is deckard a replicant yeah that's the big question right i don't even know he might be like i think it's answered in the new movie. I'll just say that. And I think that's kind of like, I can't really comment on that. So I, maybe you comment on, cause I'm afraid of giving away a spoiler basically. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think, so I think the whole movie centers around, uh, the question of the difference between life and death. Yeah. They, one of the last, uh, lines to be delivered in the 1982 movie and it's repeated is it's too bad. She won't live, but then again, who does? Mm. And, um, you know, it's, it's referring to Rachel, right. it's referring to Deckard and Rachel's exodus from, um, Los Angeles. Um, so is Deckard human or a replicant? It's the whole point of the film. What happens when the lines between technology and human is blurred to such a point yeah. is I think the question that we're to be left with in the 1982 version. That's true. Yeah. Um, and I think we can extend that into a sociological anthropological kind of analysis by asking, can we comment on the material or object oriented ontologies and epistemologies that developed in French thought, but also kind of uh, American sociological thinking at that time in the 1980s. Whoa. So at that time in the 1980s, we start to, to, Explain yourself, Phil. <laughs> we start to, to, to recognize the materiality of social existence. We start to recognize oh, okay. that technology is part of our lives. Okay, it's structuring, yeah. but it's also something that we can structure in that Bolzerian kind of yeah, sense of, back and forth of the habitus, kind of right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then are we entering the post-human era already oh, right. in 1982? Yeah. And, um, you know, what, really the emergent sociologies in the 1980s are pointing in that direction. So is the question, is Deckard human or a replicant? Can we kind of extend that a little bit to ask what sort of ways are we seeing social relationships? Mm. So, you know, I'm trying to extrapolate here, but I think the debate around is Deckard a human or a replicant foreshadows and really provides the foundation for the sorts of thinking that we have about what it means to be human uh, in the modern era. Yeah. And I think, um, I like that you bring this particular point up because that is one of the key carryovers from the novel into the first movie and then into the new movie, uh, which we'll talk about now. Um, but it, it is that question of how human are they? And in the novel, um, it centers around that question is Deckard, uh, a replicant or is he, uh, a human, I think. And, uh, the reason it's called due to androids dream of electric sheep is that um, there's a lot of social emphasis put on acquiring this technology of these cyborg animals because the environment has been destroyed and there's no living animals really available for cheap. So people want to um, get these little cyborg animals so that they can feel human, they can have their little dog in their house, right? Um, So there in the 70s, you're talking about the uh, disintegration of the nuclear family. And then here in the 80s, they're using technology to question is it actually a disintegration of humanity itself through technology? And one of the central themes, I think, in which they do this is the idea of memory. 
Mm. Uh, memory plays the central kind yeah. of role in sure. defining what is human and what is not. Now, yeah. we, I think the lines around memory are blurred with artificial intelligence, and the new movie kind of puts that directly in question. Yeah, it's centered. Um, yeah. With uh, Joy, uh, I believe, intervening um, with Kay. Yeah. Uh, is it Joy and Kay? Yeah. Uh, kind of calling each other out. Yeah. Saying, you know... How, what makes you human or what makes me a replicant? It, who's Joy? Is she um, the... Um, Joy is Anna de Amras. Yeah. Uh, uh, Robin Wright Pran or whatever. Is that right? Oh, the um, uh, Robin Wright. Uh, she's um, in House of Cards. She's uh, plays a... She did the best job. She had the best acting performance. She's in Lieutenant the Joshi. Yeah, yeah. She's like the head of the police force, basically. Right. And she is the one who gets into the questions with um, uh, Kay about like how human he, he is. And, right. Okay. Um, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but memory is central in the new movie. Um, so it's good that you bring this up. Um, what they pick up on is that these replicants need to have memories implanted into the back of their minds. Um, and there's people who create memories like you and I, if we lived in this world, we'd be memory creators, I think, right? uh, okay. <laughs> cause they just take like realistic elements of, um, like social life, like a social experience and then muddy it up and make it vague like memories are. Um, so Deckard, um, or sorry, Kay, I get the mixed up, um, in the new movie, he is on a quest to determine whether he is human or he is a replicant. And it's based around the memories that he has. So he's like, these memories are too good, right? Too good. And right. then they, he has to find the person who made the memories and so on and so forth. Um, which is a callback to the 1982 kind of ending mm. in which we are presented with, uh, daydreams, uh, of Decker. Right. Uh, seeing a unicorn run through a forest. Thank you. And who finds the piece of origami that is left by ostensibly his partner, right. um, uh, Gaff, uh, played by Edward James Olmos. Yep. Um, and uh, we are meant to understand, or one version of it, mm-hmm. is that uh, Gaff, uh, who knows that yep. Deckard is a replicant, yep. and he knows this because Gaff has the same daydreams yeah and because of the similarity in daydreams they know that those memories are implanted memories that's not lived memories yeah yeah so it's sharing memories as well having shared memories but then also memories that are like even if it's a shared memory you have your own unique perspective on your memory right so by having like literally a carbon copy memory they realize those memories are artificial and um the unicorn is really important i know ridley scott uh when he did his director's cuts he had more references to the origami uh, paper animals and then also the unicorn and that is a callback to the novel as well um electric sheep basically right right right. um but it's like it's very interesting because i i feel like memories they're they're there but then we're also always creating them right and we're also always modifying the memories that we have in place so another element is that the memories are unchangeable yes right this comes up in the 1982 version uh, from the character Batty, Roy Batty, okay. who in the ending, just before his expiration, mm-hmm. his four years are up, he's going to naturally die, Right, uh, is pissed off, is mad that all of the things, and this is almost a quote that he says, all of the things I have seen, mm-hmm. all of the uh, kind of events that have happened off world will be lost when I die. Mm-hmm. And he says, living in fear is slavery. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? So when he's playing the game of chess, of chess with Deckard, running around chasing him like he's going to kill him, mm. he, the intention was never to really kill him. The intention was to show him that 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 is like life of a slave living in fear. Mm. That message transcends the message of the difference between materiality and organic beings, and it brings us into the present. I think experience uh, of some populations that live in fear mm-hmm. and uh, the word slavery and slave that we tend to think uh, no longer exists uh, could we say that there is a social caste system for sure that you know was in 1982 and in the 2049 version of Blade Runner yeah, okay so uh, that is basically a mirror to what we are experiencing so this is a really good point Phil so the opening scene I believe in the new one after he gets to the place he's getting to is um, uh, Kay going to interview this guy who they think is a replicant? He's just going to blast him away. And one line that stuck with me, um, he's the replicant was like, "But I've seen a miracle." Right, right. Yes. And um, the you'll find out halfway through the movie what that miracle was, and I'll save you. But then 
Deckard on his way out, he sees this like little yellow flower by this old dead tree. And he's just like, after he's blown this guy away. Um, and then he, he puts it down. He thinks about it for a second and then he goes back and burns this guy's settlement down. He's like, mm-hmm. um, he's a larva farmer basically. Okay. Right. So, but this gets at this slavery thing. Like as soon as the slave gets his or her freedom, they have to have that freedom snatched away. Right. Right. Um, another element too that I, uh, that I find really fascinating about the the whole franchise is that um, l- they put a limit to the the replicant's life. Yes. Right. And that is the most like natural human thing. We all die basically, right? Because if they didn't have that check, then they are superior to us in every way. Yes. Except yep. for morals, I guess. Yep. yep. But even then, their their morals seem like they might be more sound than ours. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. No, it's a. Um, I would recommend seeing the new movie. I'll just say that. Go see it, especially if you're a fan of the franchise. Um, I don't know. I, I went in with like neutral expectations and I was a little bit disappointed. But there's, as I'm doing this podcast with you right now, more like callbacks and, and references are coming to my mind that I think a real big fan of the original and um, would really enjoy it and would really get a lot out of it. Um, so I, I would actually recommend it and I really recommend the book. The book is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. My, my expectations for Blade Runner 2049 are that aesthetically it will be pristine. Uh, it will look phenomenal. That is just, um, the attention to detail. uh, I think that they need to have to continue on a franchise like this is that it has to look really good. And Denis Villeneuve grew up watching the original. Yeah grew up watching Stanley Kubrick. I know that they tried to get him for like a number of years. They've been having yes. him to make this And movie. it just wasn't ready. It wasn't time. Yeah. And it came out. Uh, it's an all-star cast. Uh, Ryan true. Gosling, Harrison Ford, Anna de Armas, uh, Sylvia Hoikes. Hoikes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Robin Wright, Mackenzie Davis, Carla Jury. Like the list goes on. Jared Leto is yeah. in there. Yeah. Like he did a really good job, man. He, I was really surprised. I was like, holy shit, is that Jared Leto? I'm like, Oh, it's pretty good, man. <laughs> and anytime I see the soundtrack of Hans Zimmer on a movie, I know that you're going to have emotional responses in huh. a, a sensory way that cannot be experienced in, a, in any other. Dude, kind of, the music was really good. I, um, yeah, the soundtrack. Was Zimmer great. Zimmer yeah. creates stories with yeah, yeah. music and wraps you in. Just think of Batman. Yeah. Uh, Batman wouldn't have been Batman without Zimmer. Um, so my expectations are pretty high for the film. Mm. However. However, the foundation remains social science fiction. And that, mm. to me, means that there is no, nothing is taken for granted. No. Everything has a double entendre. Yeah. Everything it's has very intentional. Uh, either a reversal or yeah. it is a reflection or a mirror. Yeah. So uh, really, it's one of these movies that I probably won't see in theaters for the simple reason that I need to pause and rewind and yeah. rewatch and um like you know, i'm I'm looking forward to re-watching this yeah for sure yeah, like yeah. that's what i that was the other feeling i'm like i probably need to see that again so yeah. blade runner 1982 and the new one 2049 including the book uh by philip k dick recommendations from us yeah. all around yeah. uh but dig into it like good social science students matt yeah. uh, i'm gonna give you the last word on, on this before uh we finish up um Oh, you know what? This is kind of random. Just popped in my head. But um, if you are going to go see the new movie in theater, don't go see it in 3D. I thought the 3D added okay. nothing, actually. There was just a couple of shots of snowflakes. So I would recommend <laughs> not seeing oh, it in okay. 3D. And then also, if you're going to go uh, follow us on this simple trilogy that we got here, uh, go with the book, then watch the original again, and then see the new movie. See it in order. I think it's, it's how it was supposed to be presented. See it in order uh, and build on the franchise, build on the foundations. If you want to follow us on our journey of uh, social science fiction, social science, humanities, and arts, you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We are on Facebook at The SimPod. You can email us your questions, concerns, comments, or considerations at semiintellectual at gmail.com. We have a website that includes the archives to the show, and um, maybe we're going to post some corrections because I think we left some stuff out. We might have got some stuff wrong on this. That is at thesim.podme.com. Follow us, like us, leave us some reviews, ratings, whatever you call them, and uh, look for our patio sessions, our bonus episodes, and coming soon is going to be this great crossover episode with uh, a zombie podcast. Is anyone there? 
Halloweens. Happy Halloween, everyone. We're nearing the end of October. <laughs> Stay safe. Stay safe. When we come back, we have some recommendations. Doesn't do what they said it do. It's just a jacket. It's a windbreaker. It's not a jean jacket. It's, they call it a windbreaker. over to you to start us off okay cool um i have a really quick one uh so my wife my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law all went uh out to the family chalet uh for a few days so i was at home by myself i'm like let's watch some netflix uh, i get to pick my own shows this time uh so i started watching this show called mind hunter it's all mind hunter yeah and it's um a very interesting premise it's um it's uh partly like historical about the um start of criminal profiling and the FBI. Okay. So they're establishing the Department of Criminal Profiling. Um, it's very violent. It's very Freezing dark. Um, and it has gratuitous sex scenes in it as well. Okay. Um, so I just This sounds that like out. everything that I don't want to see, but uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. convince me, convince me. And like why I chose to watch this right around Halloween so when my family is out of town and I'm in my apartment by myself. Who knows? But it's actually thoroughly entertaining if you can get past the gratuitousness. Okay. Yeah. Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Um, my recommendation uh, this week comes on the heels of the passing of a great Canadian legend, uh, a great Canadian father, a great Canadian husband, poet. and poet, artist, musician, friend, brother, uh, Gord Downey. You might. Left us on October 17, 2017. Um, and I'm going to recommend uh, Secret Path by Gord Downey and Jeff Lemire. All proceeds of Secret Path, which is the book, including the album, go will be donated to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation that's housed at the University of Manitoba. It is something that Gord held deeply in his final weeks and months. It is something that I believe all Canadians need to think about. And there's no better way than to put uh, feet on the ground, get them moving with uh, some money, and um, really paying homage to a great Canadian who was a good friend of everyone, really. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't heard one bad story about Gord Downey um, over the past couple of weeks. They've all been, you know, really touching, really emotional stories. And even people who maybe weren't the biggest fans of the Tragically Hip, um, the band that he fronted, um, they have nothing negative. Sorry, I'm weirdly... Emo- yeah, as soon as you we're said really his emotional name, I here. got emotional, man. I'm That's sorry. okay. Um, you know, the Tragically Hip was a huge part, a big part of my musical upbringing. My sister introduced me to them early on with Road Apples, and I followed them through. A Highway Girl was on every playlist that I made, <laughs> still is. Uh, but Gord Downey transcended the Tragically Hip. He went beyond the Tragically Hip. He he was an entity of himself, um, 
and true to his musical and artistic careers, you know, some of the, the, the final things that he did in his life around Aboriginal truth and reconciliation and fighting for um, justice where injustices yeah. have taken place for the most First important Nations. thing he did. And he decided to dedicate his last year, he um, passed away of uh, terminal uh, brain cancer. Um, and he knew he was going to die like a year ahead. And he uh, recorded this amazing uh, free concert that they played on the CBC that everybody tuned in and saw. Um, but he spent his last year devoting his life to um, First Nations and Indigenous Affairs. And um, yeah, it's, it's just very important. Yeah. So one of the ways I think that as a Canadian, we should have this all on our bookshelf, much like uh, the hockey story or you know, the hockey sweater or whatever, yeah, whatever. that book was. Yeah. Replace um, the hockey sweater with this book here. Yes. I would love if you could send us pictures of Secret Path on your bookshelf. That'd be cool. Um, That'd mean a lot There's to us. lots of artwork there. So send us your, your pictures of where it is shown prominently on, on you know, somewhere in your home. Uh, we'll post that to our Facebook and Twitter pages. And check out the Chani Wenjek Foundation as well on Twitter and Facebook. Make a donation to them. But uh, all proceeds from Secret Path, the uh, the artwork, the book, and the the album will go to the uh, National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Matt, before we finish up today, yeah, we have hearted. we <laughs> have something from across the pond. Actually, um, we're we're gonna we're we're gonna air a promo, but yeah. uh, set set us up for that. Okay, so this is uh, from uh, Tyrion Dueb. He pronounces it, but I'm going to spell it for you. It's T-I-E-R-N-A-N. His last name is D-O-U-I-E-B. He's a comedian and a political podcaster, and I really like this promo, so hope you do too. Here it is. Hey you, do you like politics? No, of course you don't. Absolutely no one does. Politics is even less fun than that board game with the pegs. You know the one. Little pegs, little tiny multicoloured pegs. No one liked it. Yeah, that one. Exactly. The problem is, politics affects absolutely everything, from that game with the little pegs to your favourite cheese or what poncho to wear when it's humid but cloudy, all the way to less important stuff like education, health, affording to live and how many times you break your TV swearing at it because the Prime Minister has said something awful again. I'm Tina Duyeb, despite all of my efforts, and every week I waste away my Mondays to bring you the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that looks at politics with a dirty side eye and then makes a ton of jokes about it before interviewing a different, genuinely clever guest each week who can actually explain it, and then just when you're sick of crying at the horror of everything, throws in jokes again. Phew! From your Brexits to your Trumps to your global crisis to your economies to your whatever-the-hell-happy-slapped-uncooked-dough-man Boris Johnson has said this week, subscribe and listen to Partly Political Broadcast on the podcast app of your choice and it will all be explained. Unlike that game with the pegs. You know the one. You know the one with the little with the little coloured pegs. Oh, it's such a stupid game. Partly Political Broadcast is out every Tuesday, ready to be fired into your ears like an unwarranted North Korean missile. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Tyrion. Um, the show is, uh, as you heard, called uh, Partly Political Broadcast Podcast. So I think that's kind of a funny little play. He's uh, a stand-up comedian. He's got like over 80 episodes out. I think they started in January 2016. And it's a weekly comedy slash political podcast where they go through the news events of the previous week. And uh, I don't know. I think in today's tough times, it's nice to take a, a funny funny satirical look on things so thank you for that thanks matt thanks Tyrion. uh thank you for tuning in on this week's episode of semi-intellectual musings if you'd like to follow us on facebook we are at the simpod we are on twitter at the underscore sim underscore pod our website including the archives of the show are found at the sim all one word dot podbean dot com you can find us on stitcher itunes or your podcatcher of choice and I'm going to say it again before signing out, but send us your pictures of Secret Path. We will post that on our social media. We will talk to you soon. Rest in peace, Gord Downey.
talking Yes indeed and I'm hoping That you and me are gonna talk on This podcast for a while So I never podcast with another And then I saw my filly sitting there <laughs>